You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Big show this week. Joining me shortly will be Dr. Alan Nathan, professor of physics at the University of Illinois. He's going to teach us all the really smart things that I would never possibly come up with on my own. Uh, and right after that, stick around because Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor, is going to join me. We're going to talk about Bryce Harper's exit velocity, the fastest teams in baseball running from home to first, and the best outfield arms in baseball. Thanks for joining us. It's going to be a good show. So as we have looked at the first year of StatCast data, one thing has become very clear to me, uh, and this is really all science. If you set aside foot speed, most of what we're doing is about the actions you can take on a ball uh, and the reactions that happen because of that, whether you're talking about throwing a ball, putting a spin on it, hitting a ball at the angle and velocity. It's really all science, and specifically it's all physics. So that is why I'm very happy to have on the show with us tonight uh, Dr. Alan Nathan, who is one of the best-known, I think, baseball physicists, if that's a term. He is a professor emeritus of physics at the University of Illinois, PhD in physics from Princeton. Dr. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. I was wondering if you could tell us briefly uh, about your background. How did you come to apply your expertise specifically to baseball? Well, um, as I like to tell people, I've been doing physics all of my professional life. I've been interested in baseball even longer than that. And so about 20 years ago, uh, I read this nice little book by Robert Adair called The Physics of Baseball and uh, decided that uh, what was in that book uh, really sort of tickled my interest and and decided it was actually a good match for my own talent. So I decided that I could really do research into this, and I've been more or less doing it ever since. I... When I started, as I say, about uh, actually around 19 years ago, uh, you know, I would just spend uh, nights working on it, sometimes weekends. But as time went on, it really ramped up. And now I spend, you know, a huge fraction of my time uh, working on these things. Yeah, and you've written uh, peer-reviewed scientific journals. uh, Titles include Dynamics of the Baseball Bat Collision, Effects of Spin on the Flight of a Baseball, uh, and many more. And, you know, I've read most of them, and from what I understand of them, because let's be honest, I do not have a doctorate level understanding of physics, it's really been fascinating. And I think that, you know, you've been kind of at the forefront since many years, even before StatCast, of helping people to understand, you know, what kind of science goes into making what we see on the field happen. Uh, So what I'm curious is, before you saw StatCast data, what was your main hope that we'd be able to take away from it? Well, way back when uh, when SportVision started uh, looking at pitch ball data with pitch FX and then batted ball data with hit FX, a little bit of the hit FX data became public and immediately became clear to me that this really just opened up a whole new realm of, of research. Not only research relevant uh, to physics, there's a lot of physics in that, but also and, and maybe even more importantly relevant to the game itself. And so my hope was that with a sufficiently large data set, you really could start to uh, nail down uh, what I like to call outcome-independent batting metrics uh, that depend on the characteristics of the batted ball as opposed to the actual outcome of the batted ball. So, you know, everyone who sort of looks at statistical analysis knows that there's a lot of luck involved in baseball. And... You could have a very well-hit ball that simply is hit right at somebody or, you know, through whatever bad luck you didn't have anything to show for it. So I always thought that uh, having the characteristics of the batted ball would be enormously helpful in, 
trying to evaluate players, uh, make projections into the future as uh, how they would do based on how they've done uh, and things like that. Well, I think it's interesting that you say, uh, you know, outcome-based, because I think that's exactly what we're all trying to get to, because, you know, you don't have to have to look at it from a scientific point of view just to know, you know, sometimes you'll have a blue pit that is a double, and sometimes you'll crush a liner at 110 miles an hour right at somebody. Uh, and you've written a little bit on that. Uh, the, the term you've used is the donut hole, right? Where... Yeah, one of the things that actually immediately popped out at me way back when I looked at hit FX data, and then with StatCast data, it's been pretty well solidified is uh, there's always uh, p- people, when, when people first started talking about exit speed, uh, you get the idea that higher exit speed is always better. Well, that's mostly true. I think, you know, the goal is to get a high exit speed, but you can actually find situations where higher exit speed is not so good. And that's what happens when you hit the ball at, you know, maybe a 20 or 25 degree launch angle. If you hit it soft, it'll just carry over the infielder's head, uh, uh, but land in front of the outfielder. So you're going to get on base, a loop single, basically. If you hit it a lot harder, then that what was a bloop single is going to end up being a lazy fly ball, and it's going to get caught. And then if you hit yet harder, uh, eventually it's going to go over the fence, and you're going to get a home run. So if you look at how you're on base, average will depend on exit speed for that small range of angles. Uh, it's large at around oh, uh, 15 to 20 degrees, and then it drops uh, between 20 and 25 or so degrees. Uh, 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 I'm actually saying it wrong. What you want to do is look at 20 or 25 degrees. At 70 miles an hour, you're going to get on base. At 90 miles an hour, 80 to 90 miles an hour, the ball is going to get caught. And then once you're over 100 miles an hour, you're probably going to get a home run out of it. So, you know, that's what I call the donut hole, that that in-between spot where uh, that ball is caught. Yeah, and I think that's actually a lot easier to understand when you when you see it. So uh, follow Dr. Nathan on, on Twitter at POBGuy, and he tweets out charts that kind of explain this uh, often. I wanted to turn to spin rate with you for a minute because I think spin has really been a fascinating thing of the first year because it's something most people haven't really thought about before. Um, and we've kind of looked at, you know, talking about curve balls, a higher spin generally means that you have the ball uh, with more vertical movement. So an example would be Garrett Richards, top spin in baseball on his curveball, second most vertical movement, and that makes sense. But the only guy who had a higher vertical movement than him, or, or a larger vertical movement than him, would be Mike Fires, and he had the 33rd highest spin. And so, you know, that kind of throws that for a loop. And what I've been uh, reading and, and understanding is that there's a difference between useful spin and total spin. And what that maybe means is that because of the axis of Richard's uh, curveball, he might not be using all of that effectively. Is that an accurate summary? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's pretty good. That, that's, uh, this is something that I uh, sort of uh, realized uh, only in the last year or so, when I started to first get access to data from, from StatCast. Or, you know, so StatCast uses the TrackMan radar system for measuring the flight of the ball, primarily. And uh, that system allows you to actually measure directly the spin on the ball. And you could compare that spin with the actual movement. And what you find uh, for curveball pitchers is that uh, just just like you described, some uh, you, you, you might naively think that the higher the spin, the greater the movement, but that's not necessarily the case. So if some of that spin is uh, so, so-called bullet spin, uh, 
you know, or a few years ago we might have called it gyro spin, uh, where you know where, where the ball is spinning like a bullet. Uh, that's quite a common kind of spin to have on a slider. On a curveball, you know, I think it depends on uh, very much on individual pitchers. And the thing about the bullet spin is that doesn't contribute to any movement. So if the spin axis is tilted a little forward so that you've got some bullet spin on the ball, you're, uh, you may have a high spin, but you're not, you won't necessarily have a comparably high uh, movement. And so that's one thing that I, I would say is very ripe for research now that we have a whole season worth of StatCast data where we could start looking at individual pitchers to see how efficient they are in, having, uh, in getting movement out of the spin that they actually have. Yeah, and I think it could be interesting to try to identify a hanging curve, for example, because players sometimes describe that as just kind of spinning but not actually moving, uh, and hanging curves often end up in the outfield or leaving the park. So now that you've actually seen the StatCast data, you know, is there a way to disseminate that spin, or can we measure just the useful spin? Yeah, so uh, that is sort of an ongoing research project for, uh, for me. Uh, I've, I've started to delve uh, into the, the StatCast data from last year, but it's, it's sort of still a work in progress. But it's a, li- it's a little bit tricky, uh, and this is sort of where it helps to have a little physics background. To determine the useful spin, you, you determine that from the movement, and that's not exactly straightforward to do. It requires knowing the relationship between the useful spin and the movement. So you measure the movement directly, and you're trying to infer the useful spin out of it. So that requires actually doing laboratory experiments. So one of the papers that you mentioned is an actual experiment that I did some years ago, the effect of spin on the flight of the baseball. And there have been more experiments that have been done since then. And so it's still nevertheless true that our knowledge of the relationship between the useful spin and the movement is still not perfect. Okay, there's, uh, there's experimental uncertainty on things. But, okay, it's a work in progress, and the hope is then you can determine from the movement the useful spin, compare that with the total spin that's actually measured with TrackMan, and develop something that you might call an efficiency, uh, a spin efficiency, how efficient the pitcher is at getting movement on on uh, uh, on his curveball. So we've been talking about curveballs, and uh, curveballs are pretty much the opposite of fastballs in the sense that they have top spin, while fastballs have backspin. And uh, I think that's been interesting because we've been talking about guys with high fastball spin, like Chris Young is a great example. And he throws what is colloquially known as a rising fastball, but it's not actually true. It doesn't rise. It just defies gravity for slightly longer. Uh, but I, I, you wrote something interesting. Even though it doesn't rise, it is actually possible to throw a fastball that will rise if you have enough spin on it, except it's probably just not biomechanically possible in terms of what a human can do. Yeah, you, you would need, if, if, you know, knowing what we know about how spin affects movement, uh, you, you would need probably uh, a huge amount. I, I don't remember the exact number, probably something like 5,000 RPM or something in order to defy gravity. So in, in order for the upward force, due to the fact that the ball is spinning, to be greater than the weight of the ball, that's what you would need. Um, of course, uh, you know, what one means by a rising fastball, uh, uh, normally what you mean by that is that the upward pull due to the spin is greater than the downward pull due to gravity. But of course, if you throw the ball up, if you were a submarine pitcher or in softball, underhanded pitchers, they're, they're throwing rise balls all the time. 
Uh, but but they are there. The ball is literally rising, but it's but it's rising because you're throwing it with an upward trajectory. And we talked about that briefly on Twitter, and I saw that in the Central Park softball league last year, and struck out about forty times because of it. Uh, yes. One thing I want to ask you about: one of our early, you know, quote unquote victories was uh, shattering a longtime myth, and this was based on research that you had done. The myth is always the more power that the ball comes in with, the harder it'll go out with, and that's something that's been heard forever. Uh, and it turns out the science doesn't really support that. It's roughly. 85-15 split in terms of the batter supplying the power, uh, and that makes sense when you watch the home run derby. It's 65 mile an hour meatballs down the middle of the plate. But I've heard a counter argument to that, and I know you've written on this as well, that a fastball, even though it's faster, may be easier to square up, and that might actually lead to more exit velocity. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, for sure, uh, if there's not a lot of movement on the ball, it, it it's probably easier to square up on it, and you, you, and for sure, if you can square up, it, you're going to get a higher exit velocity. Uh, but the, but going back to what you said before, though, uh, certainly, uh, I mean, it, it, if you listen to uh, announcers on TV, for example, sometimes they really do get it all wrong, and they, they really do talk about. Uh, they're talking as though the speed of the pitch matters a lot to the speed of the batted ball, and it really doesn't. I mean, it, as you say, it matters something like 15%. Um, you know, you could... Uh, so the, the, the speed that the bat is moving is much, much more important. So, you know, one, one way to convince yourself of that is just to realize uh, you could hit the ball off a tee a long way or hit a fungal a long way. There the pitch speed is zero, basically. Uh, whereas if you just if you don't swing the bat at all, you just put it out in front as though you're bunting. You know the ball's not going to go very far, no matter how hard it's thrown. So it really is true. But I think what you say also is true that uh, on a straight pitch, it's probably easier for the batter to square up, and he very well could get a higher exit speed simply because of that. Now, we can't let you go without asking about course Field because that's really been our favorite topic around here for a while, just because everything is so weird when you're playing at, at altitude. Uh, paraphrasing something you wrote here is that you know the air is really important. Uh, you wrote that with if there were no air, a typical 400-foot home run would probably travel about 700 feet. And at Coors Field, there's about 20% less air than at sea level. So that's a big difference. But then also, we know that there's effects on spin and there's effects on a whole lot of things. What do you think is the number one reason from a, a scientific point of view that baseball is so difficult at Coors? Well, it's it's certainly the thinness of the air. I mean, but and it affects things in 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 two in two ways. There's less movement on the pitches, okay, and that favors the batter. And fly balls carry a lot further. Uh, actually, one of the really nice things that Statcast has been able to provide uh, is uh, we we now have a whole season worth of data where we can look at fly balls that are hit more or less the same, same exit velocity, same launch angle, and start comparing how far they go in different places. So everything's the same except the location. And when you do that, you discover that a ball that's hit, you know, sort of like 100 or so miles an hour, hundred low hundreds of miles an hour at about a 25 to 30 degree launch angle. So that's something that's going to be a home run in most places. That ball carries about 25 feet further in Coors Field than it does uh, at sea level, and that's a, that. That's not a, That's not theory. That's that's actual data. So Statcast has, has told us a lot about that. Um, so 
you know, you so in at cores, uh, in a way, they make matters worse. They move the fences back. Okay, so the, so it's a big outfield. Uh, that tends to reduce the number of home runs a bit, but then that increases the amount of real estate that the outfielders have to cover. So you know, you're sort of trading off one thing for another. You end up with a lot of balls hit in the gap for doubles and things like that. So. Um, yeah, it's a it's a pitcher's nightmare. There's no question about it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's very underrated how big that outfield is because people kind of forget that. Uh, you know, final question, and then we'll let you go. I think the first year of StatCast was really interesting. What are you kind of hoping we can learn in the second year? Like a year from now, what do you be like, wow, that was really great in 2016? Yeah, uh, this, whole, this whole thing about determining these outcome-independent uh, metrics for batting is really sort of that's something I'm I'm currently working on myself, and I suspect others are probably also working on it. Uh, for, for sure, I think major league teams are probably working on such things. I, I really have become quite fascinated by that. Uh, and once you've, I mean, so you you could get some some general ideas about things uh, with just a little bit of data that we had, for example, from HitFX. Uh, but but once you have a whole season's worth of data and then another season, you could really start to drill down on it and look uh, in, in much finer detail. You could start looking at individual batters uh, and, and ask questions like, why does this particular batter uh, overperform based on his batted ball characteristics and why does this guy underperform? And you could make, ask the same questions about pitchers. You could ask how well does, for example, how well does uh, the, the batted ball characteristics from 2015 predict what happens in 2016 for the same batter? I mean, so these are, these are all interesting questions that um, fascinate me. They're not really physics questions, but they're baseball questions, and, but they're really, they really get at the heart of the game. Well, there's nothing wrong with that because really this entire thing is about you know, trying to understand baseball on a new level, and uh, you're absolutely right that for me it's really finding out how much this stuff correlates from year to year because I think another year of data will really make that stand out. Uh, Dr. Alan Nathan, thanks so much for your time. Follow him on Twitter at POBGuy, really interesting stuff. Dr. Nathan, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Enjoy talking. I think we should have uh, physics doctors on with us every week. Because just by being associated with that, I feel smarter now. Definitely. Just by having listened to it. Yeah, that was great. He had some really interesting stuff. And there was a lot of things that, that I took away from that. But what stood out to you? Um, talking about expected outcomes and, you know, taking some of the luck elements out of, uh, out of hitting. I mean, for me, you know, we've already had betting average on balls in play as sort of has been the basic version of, of, uh, of, of this concept. Uh, but just sort of taking it to that, that next level is really what's, what we're hoping to do soon with StatCast. Right, because, you know, BABIP, if you want to call it that, it's kind of subject to is it luck, is it skill? Because, you know, I could go on the mound and get crushed, and it's not bad luck, it's because I'm not a very good pitcher. But you've had guys in front of lousy defenses, and maybe it is a little bit of luck. So I think we can actually apply some exit velocity and some angle into it, and that's going to lead us to some really interesting places. I also think from a broadcast viewer, you know, from a viewership perspective, it can be really interesting. An example that I remember from... The postseason, uh, Josh Donaldson had a ball in the ALCS. It was in a key moment. He smoked it. Mustaka scooped it at third, and it like it killed a rally for the Jays. And it turned out it was the hardest hit ball that Donaldson had hit all season, the AL MVP. And it, it was, was out. It was an <laughs> out. You know, and it was just it was a perfect example. Like if you know, and we we tweeted something about it at the time. We said this is the hardest hit ball. You know, I wish we sort of had been able to say 
with that exit velocity and that launch and that uh, launch yeah. angle, that should be that's usually hit ninety eight percent of the time. Right. That would have more of an impact. That okay. would have more more of an impact. So being able to do that as a within a, within a game game watching experience, I think right. would add something. And, and it's really going to help us, you know, look at pitchers, right? Like Zach Greinke had this crazy low ERA and, and Babbitt last year. Was that skill? Was it luck? Probably both, right? But we're really going to be able to get to that with the data. And that's exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that uh, that, that uh, Dr. Nathan mentioned that was at least interesting to me was he name-dropped uh, Dr. Robert Adair, who wrote The Physics of Baseball. All right. I'm going to uh, kick my feet up on the desk and listen to your Robert Adair <laughs> I've got a good story. Robert Adair story. At least I think I've got a good Robert Adair story, which is um, a few years ago I was working on a story when I was an editor at ESPN the Magazine about sliding and about takeout slides and sort of the physics of all of this. And my boss, editor-in-chief, was like, I want to find out if it's – the age-old question, you know, why do people slide in the first? Is it faster? And I was like, well, everyone said, you know, it's really obviously not faster to slide in the first base. He was like, well, I want a scientist. He's like, find me, you know, some some science behind this. So I looked up the guy who wrote the physics of baseball. You tracked down Harvard Air. Right, Harvard Air. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I emailed him, and then finally I got him on the phone, and he said, you know, like, to be honest with you, my hypothesis is that in a perfect world perfect conditions, it might actually be faster to, to slide into first base. You know what scares me? I was doing research for the show tonight, and I came across, it was a couple years old, but Dr. Nathan had written something similar. Yeah, but basically what Robert Adair said was, but when you factor in that like umpires don't know how to judge it properly, and it might screw up their judgment, and the yeah. fact that you increase your chance of injury, yeah. the possibility of doing the perfect slide, well, that's the, the gain is not worth... That's exactly right. Yeah. That's, what the, that's what the science is. If you do it absolutely perfectly, like if you jump at the peak of your velocity and you like maximize your reach, it could be faster, but it's so hard to actually do that that it almost never works out that way. Exactly. And uh, I think there's a nice segue to a couple of pieces that you wrote this week that I were generating a lot of, a buzz, on, a lot of buzz on Twitter, so much so that I, when I tweeted them out, I got a retweet from none other than the Houston Astros general manager, Jeff Luno. How about that? Yeah, maybe the best retweet I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, but anyway, you did two pieces, uh, one of which um, breaking down the fastest players uh, home to first and the best outfield arms yes. home to first. Um, the quick takeaways... Um, for me, and then I want to get hear what you have to say about it. The Houston Astros, fastest team, home to first, best outfield, best outfield arms. Hence the retweet from Jeff, Jeff Luno. Yeah, but you were working on this. What was your biggest takeaway from this research? Um, well, I mean, obviously, yeah, the Astros standing out because wow. Uh, for me, it was the, the home to first, right? Who are the first two guys you think of? You think of D. Gordon, you think of Billy Hamilton, and they were the top three, but neither of them were number one. It was actually Billy Burns from Oakland. And, you know, we're talking about on the scale of like tenths of a second, but Billy Burns is the guy who really burned down to first better than D. Uh, D. Gordon or, or Billy Hamilton, uh, and I found that fascinating. It would, it would be somebody else, and that's really kind of interesting. Yeah, the guy that stood out to me actually on that was uh, Delano de Shields because he's the the highest-ranking right-handed hitter. Yes. Um, the top three above them all came from the left side, or at least switch hitters, and well, they're times from the left well, side. Well, they actually are listed out separately. So this is like Billy Burns lefty, and then separately is Billy Burns right. Okay, So got that's it. just lefty. I actually take back everything I said. I have to revise my answer. Ichiro was, in, was tied for top five. And he's, you know, 75 years old, and here he still is at a, a sub-four-second average time. We should take a quick second just to explain briefly what the, the methodology was here. Obviously, nobody cares about you running 40 miles an hour to jog out a pop-up. We took uh, the 90th percentile and, and everybody's average above that just to get like their really like competitive kind of plays to get where they're really trying hard. The 90th percentile of relative to their, their, their max Relative to themselves, right? Yes. We didn't want to put like a flat number because obviously yeah. the catcher isn't going to run like D. Gordon runs. Uh, so that's how we did it. And that really, it came out interesting because it, it passes the smell test for me that, you know, Burns, Gordon, Hamilton, DeShields are, are in the top. And that really makes Ichiro stand out for me. 
Well, the thing about the shields, well, two things, one of which is uh, we've done some other research this year that showed that no player in baseball topped 21 miles per hour more than he did on the base path. So either, I'm not saying he's necessarily the the straight fastest, but in games, he's either trying harder or or just is getting opportunities to like really leg it out. But it was amazing to me that he was at 130, he topped 21 miles an hour 132 times. D. Gordon was second at 111. So it wasn't just a a gap, it was a big gap. And he had lost plenty of time too. You know, the other thing is that we're talking about the Astros leading this. They had DeShields up until a year ago and then he lost him on a Rule 5 pick to to Texas. So if they'd had him on top of that, they'd have been like blowing everybody. Well, that was actually going to be my second DeShields point. And And that's, to me, that the Astros point is, what's fascinating to me is because the Astros have been seen as this analytical team. And for a long time, you know, people associate analytics with Moneyball. And there's still, even still, 15 years or however long of the book has been written, there's still this idea that Moneyball is, you know, guys who draw walks, slow guys who draw walks. Very misunderstood. <laughs> and then you look at this team, the Astros have put together a roster of, like, guys scouts would, would, would drool over. Just tools, goofs. Jake Marisnik is at the top of the leaderboard for... He's one of the not one of the fastest runners, but he, he, he shows up along fast. Yeah, and then he is he was the fa- uh, best arm strength of anybody. The exact same 90th percentile methodology. Uh, so Marisnik and Carlos Gomez were at the top two, and Gomez had the hardest throw by anybody all year. I, I remember off the top of my head, it was 103.1, and it was a bullet. It got Joe Maurer out at the plate. So yeah, it's really interesting. They have the the top two, and then it was something like three in the top 25 with Springer, and then you know four of the top 50 or so with with Colby Rasmus. So that's a, that's not a team you run on, and so they really do have these athletic guys, strong arm. They can run, uh, and it's kind of like you said, not what you'd expect when you look at how the team is put together. And the the one guy in that list that I also want to point out is um, well, relative to Marisnik, one thing that was interesting when I we went and looked at some of his hardest throws. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> some of them, and this this speaks to the point. It's like some of it. I mean, we're not all great throws. <laughs> we're not all great throws. <laughs> some of them read off 15 feet over the catcher's yeah. head or whatever. But the but... arm strength is there. But the, the one guy that stood out to me on that note is Avisel Garcia, who's fourth on the list um, with an average max effort throw of 96 point, uh, basically 97 miles per hour, and he had 18 assists last year. Led led the majors amongst that fielders. So he's a guy that I kind of want to do a little more he's interesting, look, right? look into because it seems like he may actually be, effectively speaking, the most uh, deadly out Yeah, well, it, it's interesting, though, because I, I, I didn't run this, but I wouldn't expect this to correlate well with assists, right? Because not only is there the accuracy thing, but guys who have that reputation, they don't get run on, yeah. right? Who's going to run on Cespedes at this point or Puig? Probably not that many guys. I doubt they have a ton of assists. So is it Garcia? Maybe he... You know, he wasn't scaring anybody, and that's why he was getting all these opportunities. You know, I don't know, but I think you're interesting. You're, you're right. He's an interesting guy to dig into. Uh, another guy that shows up on this list, and this is a nice, nice segue to, to our next segment, uh, is the uh, is Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper is 11th. Uh, 11th. 95.4 miles an hour. You know, it's, this is a guy, I mean, what... What can he do? Yeah, I mean, he's, listen, I, I can't believe, it. you know, two years in a row there was the, I forget what magazine, they had the players poll and they voted him most overrated. I don't think that's going to happen a third year in a row, right? He just had a, one of the most historic seasons in baseball history. Um, and, well, that leads me to the next thing I wanted to bring up, which is uh, our StatCast Stat of the Week. Yes. Uh, starring Bryce Harper. 92.3 miles an hour and or 39th overall in exit velocity. Which... How, do you, how do you explain, so Bryce Harper, NL MVP, yeah. A, a year, one of the best offensive seasons since peak Barry Bonds, maybe? Yeah, well, <laughs> right. I mean, we, we proved that exit velocity correlates well to success, and I don't think that's a big surprise to anybody, right? John Carlos Stanton crushes the ball. He's got numbers. You know, Miguel Cabrera, Goldschmidt, all these guys, they crush the ball. They put up numbers. And here's Bryce Harper down, you know, 39th. 
after putting up this monster season. And so, you know, it kind of vexed us for a while. We've been thinking about this. And it, it really is, it's about where he's pitched. We looked at the uh, the inner third of the plate and inside balls. Exit velocity, 84 miles an hour. Not that great. Now you look at him in the center zones and the outer zones, 96.3 miles an hour, slugging percentage of like, you know, 700 something. So it's really about, he's got a little bit of a weakness on the inside part of the plate, similar to how Mike Trout had to overcome his weakness on high fastballs. The problem is pitchers can't really hit that spot too well. And if you miss that spot, you're in the middle of the plate and the ball ends up in the lake. Yeah, the one, and the other guy that I thought is interesting in regards to that is Matt Harvey, the one guy who sort of yes. seems to be Bryce Harper kryptonite. O- I mean, over Nick, 20. Over 20, seven strikeouts and three walks. You know, obviously, you know, one of the big sabermetric arguments over the years is pitcher-batter matchups. Are they meaningful? What do they tell us, if anything? Right. And generally speaking, they tell us... Nothing. I I ignore them unless they're at the total extremes, right? So Paul Goldschmidt against Tim Lincecum I pay attention to because he has just abused Tim Lincecum. And this is kind of an extreme. I mean, 0 for 20, that's something. So I I think we need to actually delve into that a little closer. Like, what is he doing? And I I don't think we know that yet. But you said you'd looked at the... Did you tell me you'd looked at the spray chart? Like, the heat map and he sort of... He actually seemed to be pitching him outside? He was pitching him outside. I expected it to be all inside. And it actually wasn't the case. Like, he was pitching him outside. So who knows? You know, it's such a small sample size. Maybe he was hitting rockets that happened to be caught, but... 0 for 20, that can't all be luck. You know, there's got to be something to that. So I think it's fascinating to see that even Bryce Harper is not the best at everything. Of course, he's only, what, 23 years old, so he's still got plenty of time to fix that. Hey, this has been the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Matt Myers here with me. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Alan Nathan. Uh, Catch you next week.